Good morning, Village Church. My name's David. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's good to be in the Christmas season, yeah? Feels good. We like trees and lights and all these things. Uh, everything's decorated. I didn't do any of that. I uh, didn't help with any of that, but uh, thank you for those who did. Looks beautiful. And uh, it's fun to celebrate Christmas. I know um, Christmas is hard because, you know, you're, you grow up and there's all these special things and you set out your little nativity set and it's so beautiful and all these wonderful things. Then you grow up and you join like a Bible-believing church and they just ruin everything. And they're like, you know, we don't, the Bible doesn't really say there was wise men there. And the Bible doesn't say there was like all these animals there. Now you got to throw away half your nativity set, you know. And the price per piece is just astronomical at that point, you know, for you. But we love the Christmas story because you can just kind of feel the whole weight of the universe, the universe that's desperate for a Savior. And maybe you grew up with your parents reading you this story, or maybe you grew up um, and you never really read this story at all. But later on in life, um, you were saved, and you got to read it for the first time as, as a believer And the story of Christmas, in one sense, begins thousands of years back when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, and and God speaks all of these curses that are now entering into the world, but the prophecy comes that one day there will be a Messiah who will come and crush the head of Satan. And so that is the beginning of Christmas, but now in a more narrow sense, Christmas begins in Luke chapter 1, when the angel appears to Mary and tells her all that will take place. And these words are very familiar to us, and today we're going to get deeper into some particular words of this passage, but we'll read it together just piece by piece. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We see Mary was betrothed to Joseph. We often say that the word betrothed is just how they would say the word engaged. And in a general sense, this does mean engaged. But in our culture, uh, an engagement has become more like a plan, right? We, we plan to be married. We plan to pick a wedding date. We plan to design a cake and test a bunch of cakes. And, you know, for me, I was always like, I'm just not sure. I think we need to do the cake testing one more time. We plan to start looking at wedding venues where someone has built an old barn out in a field, even though it's Orange County and, and it's all this um, just rotting wood. And for one expensive evening, you and all of your loved ones can pretend that you live in rural Kentucky. <laughs> That's a modern engagement. And then you wake up the next day and you have to figure out how to afford to live here, not rural Kentucky. And you're like, I should have just... (laughs) Some engaged people in our church, that's for you. Modern engagement is not a perfect comparison to first century betrothment. Betrothment was a binding commitment to marriage. Joseph would have sworn a vow to his bride, and, and to break this betrothment would require divorce. We see that in Matthew's account, right? Even though they were not yet married. What does the angel Gabriel say? Let's look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's somewhat common for people, and we see it in Scripture, to say the Lord be with you. 
I had a friend text me, a, a partner. Um, he's in this room. Um, <laughs> he texted me this week at 9 p.m. saying, pray for me. And my daughter decided she wants to go to bed without a pull-up on tonight for the first time. She said she's ready. And men, we don't need a lot of words. I just wrote back one word. I said, Godspeed. <laughs> we say the Lord be with you for all sorts of things. But it's very clear in our text that the angel is making a statement. He's saying the Lord is with you. He's more than hopeful. He is certain. And how is the Lord with her? He calls her, O favored one. In the Greek here, we, we find this hundreds of times in all its forms throughout the New Testament, often translated simply as the word grace. You could say Mary is graced by God. And it's a story of Christmas in one sentence. That, that It's the story of unmerited, undeserved grace from God. That she didn't wake up that morning thinking, I'm pretty worthy of an angelic visitation today. I don't know about you. I'm feeling ready for it. Mary was greatly troubled, it says. You can translate this as confused, perplexed. Certainly, she didn't feel worthy of a visit from an angel. She's not a king. She's not a ruler. And she's right, none of it makes sense. But for those of us who look back on the story of salvation throughout history, it kind of looks like it makes perfect sense. Because God's story of salvation, it flows through the most unexpected twists and turns. It flows through hardship and persecution. It flows through disobedience and doubt and droughts and famines. It flows through little David out with the sheep and not his older, stronger brothers. All the older, stronger men lined up, ready to be chosen as king, and, so, and God says, no, no, bring me the little fella. You know? God's story of salvation, it flows through, as we see, barren wombs and miracle births. It flows through egregious sins and repentance and reconciliation. It flows through exile and it flows through return. So why would God's story of salvation not now find its way to a teenage girl in a small town? Someone might say, God waited thousands of years to send a Messiah, and you expect me to believe that he is going to do it like this. There's no way. And we would just say, have you met God? It's kind of like what he does. It's kind of what he does. Look at verse 31. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so Luke chapter 1, it's the fulfillment, it's the continuation really of the prophecy that we see in Isaiah chapters Chapter 7, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Look at it, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so what do we see now in verses 31 through 33? I think we see that there's beauty in all of the details. There's beauty in the details. The throne of David, the house of Jacob, and the name of Jesus. And so I want to go through these things. The angel tells us that Jesus will be given the throne of David. I think this reminds us this morning that this is the God of all authority. 
that God is the God of all authority. We trace back through this story of God's people. You think back, um, back to Moses. Moses leads the Israelites out of captivity and into the desert, and they're led by God. God was their only king. Moses was a representative of the people before God, sure, but they had no king. There was no throne of Moses. I mean, did Moses want a throne? Probably. Sounds nice. Wandering in the desert, if I was there, I'd be bored. I'd be like, I'll take a throne, right? Bunch of dirt, bread falling from the sky, you're bored, but no throne. Then we get to Joshua. Joshua leads God's people. Eventually, we get to the time of the judges, and that was a disaster. <laughs> and finally, the people demanded a king. They said, all the other nations have a king. Why can't we have a king? The prophet Samuel then says, that's not a good idea. And God himself says, that's not a good idea. And the people, they think that they know best, and God gives them a king reluctantly. God knew this was foolish. God says, you need no king. What you need is to trust the God that you cannot see and trust in his faithfulness throughout all generations. I've proven myself worthy of being your king. But the people demanded a king, and so they suffered from sinful and imperfect leadership, corrupt kings and selfish kings who put their hope in their own strength and their own wisdom. And this led to destruction of cities and splitting of tribes and eventually even being taken captive by enemies. But in the midst of God allowing all of their foolish demands for a king, he sends the prophet Nathan to speak these words. We see it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look at it with me. <clears throat> he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So even in the midst of God's people demanding a king and God reluctantly giving it to them, he's still prophesying the everlasting kingdom that will come through the, the throne of David. Verse 13, he says, Your son Solomon, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Where's King Solomon today? He's dead, right? Where's the throne of King Solomon? It's destroyed. Verse 16, Your throne, David, shall be established forever. Where's King David today? He's not alive with us. Where's King David's throne? It's destroyed. He never even saw it. And so the angel Gabriel tells Mary that Jesus would sit on the throne of David. What does that tell us? First, that it was always about Jesus from the beginning. And second, that God doesn't forget his promises. Through all of the destruction and the war and the exile, God now returns and Jesus will take up the throne of David. And this Jesus is from the house of David, as promised in verse 16 of Nathan's prophecy here. And so there's beauty in the details. Jesus takes up the throne of David. And God says, remember when I said forever, I meant forever. And we see God's perfect 
authority. That's the first thing. Gabriel says Jesus will sit on the throne of David forever. There's beauty in the details. What else? It says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. I think that this detail reminds us that this is the God of all wisdom. It's the God of all wisdom that works throughout all of history, works throughout all of the lives of his people, that God knows best and he writes the story of salvation perfectly. We know Jesus is a Jewish man, but not only that, Jesus is now to be born in the house of Joseph. It's miraculous, yes. It's a, it's a virgin birth, we see, yes. But the genealogy of Matthew and Luke makes it very clear for us that the line of Joseph matters. That's fascinating, right? Because Joseph is like, okay, so you want me for my bloodline, but now, you know, Mary's pregnant. Apparently, you didn't need me for that part. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. We see the genealogy of Joseph. The line of Joseph takes us through King David, takes us all sorts of other cool places, takes us through Ruth and Boaz and through the tribe of Judah and through Jacob, the father of the tribes of Israel, and of course, through Isaac and Abraham. Again, what do we see? There's beauty in the details. The story of salvation has weaved through the Israelites and now in God's perfect wisdom. This is the time and this is the place and Mary is the chosen mother for this great moment of the Messiah coming. And to say the house of Jacob is to say the people of God, those who put their faith in Jesus, including you and me, grafted in to the house of Jacob. It's an incredible miracle for us. And lastly, Gabriel says that his name will be Jesus. I think when we see the name of Jesus, we see clearly that this is the God of all salvation. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, you could literally translate, Yahweh saves. This is from the Hebrew for Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. We'll come back to this again in the end. We'll keep going, but I think if we had to summarize this incredible statement from Gabriel, we could say something like this. God is perfect in power. God is perfect in wisdom, and he's come to save his people. That's the message from Gabriel. He's saying the throne belongs to Jesus. The story was always about Jesus, and salvation was always through Jesus. Amen? We see that in Scripture. And how does this statement end? Look again at verse 33. It says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. I love this verse at Christmas because it reminds us that we have an everlasting God who invites us into an everlasting kingdom in the midst of a world where nothing lasts at all. And everything is temporary and all the joy is fleeting. My wife thinks I'm a bit of a Debbie Downer. And the reason she thinks this is because she spends time with me. If you ever go on a vacation with somebody and you're in like a beautiful place and you wish you could just be there forever, there's always that one person in the family that's like, well, today's Wednesday. Vacation's halfway over. You know? I think I'm going to call the airport shuttle today and just make sure 
We're all good for our pickup on Friday. That's me. I'm that guy. I'm the guy who says to everyone, I hope we have a great sunset tonight. Can you believe it? We only have two more. Uh, and we got to get back home. We have a lot of laundry to do when we get home. And <laughs> we got to file our taxes. We got like, two weeks for that. I'm always ruining things that are wonderful by pointing out the inevitable end. <laughs> and I like to think this, this is what it would be like to be on vacation with Jesus. But probably not. <laughs> the permanence of God's kingdom, it stands in contrast to our world, where every good thing is fleeting. Even when you think that you have finally grabbed hold of something, and you start to think, this is not going to slip from my hands, you realize it might not slip from your hands, but you're not going to like it as much day after day. Even the joy of that thing will fade, even if you manage to keep it with you. Maybe you grew up without a lot of money and your family never went to nice places and you start a career and you start traveling for work and you work your way up into a, you know, a better career and they start sending you to better hotels on your work travels. The hotels get fancier and you're like, this is, this is kind of nice. And all of a sudden you hit that threshold that we're all trying to hit, which is where the hotel has a robe in it. <laughs> and you, that first time it happens, you put the robe on and you stand on the balcony and you just look out like a king on all of the peasants who dwell in your land, you know? But the years go by and you still travel for work and the hotels are nice and, and you stopped putting the robe on, didn't you, you know? There's a lot of hotels where sometimes like they're nice and they have, they have a gym and inside there's little packs of headphones and you can just take the headphones. They're just sitting in a basket. How can they do that? Because they know the people who stay in that hotel, they're used to that. They don't care that the headphones are just sitting there. I care. And so I'm going to take all of them. Because <laughs> they're free and you have that scarcity mindset. And I've never been somewhere with free headphones. And they have free apples too. And so you take 30 green apples and you walk back to the room and I don't have a plan for these. And your wife is like, what are you doing? And you say, I can't talk right now. I need to go get more apples. And, but eventually you go to another hotel and it has the same headphones and it has apples. And you realize nobody is panicking about this. And so you just take one apple. And the next time you go, you take a deep breath and you realize, I don't even like apples. Christmas time, you go down to the harbor and you see all the lights on the boats and you walk past the fancy yachts and you're just so mad at these people. You say, how could you own a yacht and you're not even here? If I had a yacht, I'd be on that thing all day long. And you would for a while. And then after a while, you'd be on it a little bit less and a little bit less. And after a while, you'd be kind of angry that it wasn't bigger because your buddy got a bigger yacht. And you're like, I got a medium yacht. This is the worst. <laughs> Everything in life is always slipping from our hands. But even the things that we manage to hold on to, they fade over time. We want new. We want better. We want more. We want lasting joy, right? 
Christmas story reminds us that our hearts are longing for permanence. We're surrounded by things that don't last. Our bodies are getting older. Our possessions are getting worn down. Things break. People disappoint us. And the Christmas season causes our minds to look back on past years and past memories and maybe even loved ones who have entered the picture and some who have left. Last week, I got to hug Bella McIntosh for the first time, a girl that we were praying would be adopted for over a year, and all of a sudden, she's just walking around our building, and she just gives me a hug. And like, I don't speak either of our languages with you. Like, we, don't, we can't communicate any of these things, but uh, you just want to give me a hug, and I'm cool with that. But then last night, along with many of you, I attended the memorial service of Lauren Graves, who was a village partner with us, and she lost her battle with cancer at 32 years old. Again, look at verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I think we see clearly in Scripture that life, life is going to take you on a roller coaster of highs and lows and we have to believe what Gabriel is saying here, or we'll be tossed around trying to anchor ourselves in all sorts of things. Some of you will be sitting in your living room on Christmas morning this year, longing for the days when it was a lot more quiet in your house, and a lot easier, and a lot less batteries to purchase. Some of you will be sitting in your living room on Christmas morning, longing for the days when it was a lot more loud in your house. Isn't life strange like that? The best moments don't last, and we struggle to even fully enjoy the moments we have. And so Gabriel appears to Mary and declares all sorts of promises of God, but he finishes with a promise, a declaration of permanence. I pulled it out for us here. Check it out. This is starting in verse 31. This is a summary. You will conceive. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne. He will reign. There will be no end. And so we look at the story of God, and I think we can say maybe something like this. God is building an eternal kingdom. And yet somehow... The eternal kingdom of God makes every detail of this temporary life meaningful, not meaningless. It doesn't make sense in that way. It's so easy for us to think something so big and glorious and grand and makes every single piece of my life pale in comparison, and yet it really brings back the opposite. It speaks life and meaning into every little detail of our life. The things that we do, the work that we do, the areas of life that we cultivate, they matter for the kingdom of God, somehow, in some way. The simple faith of a teenage girl in a small town, it matters for the kingdom of God, somehow, in some way. Let's keep going, verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come Upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing, verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The Christmas story is a reminder to us that we can be people who believe in a God that makes everything possible. Verse 37 is Gabriel's answer to Mary's question in verse 34. Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Gabriel says, verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. The virgin birth of Jesus was not impossible with God. Just like the miracles of Jesus' ministry were not impossible with God. Jesus heals the sick because that's what God can do. He walks on water because that's what God can do. And he heals blind men because that's what God can do. And he draws hearts of men to see and believe because that's what God can do. And so Village Church, we can look to what is ahead and we can speak honestly about it. We all have things in the future that look difficult or feel impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. And so we can speak to God like that is true. We can talk about God like that's true. And we share with each other our worries and fears and struggles. I hope we can give each other answers that reflect a faith that we have that nothing is impossible with God. That's what we do as a church family, right, Village Church? We've been seeing God do impossible things through our prayers this year, and we're not gonna stop believing in that. Amen? Yeah. The last thing we see clearly here in verse 38 is the humility of Mary. Humility is the natural end in our pursuit of truth. Mary is confused and she's curious and she's questioning, but ultimately the angel Gabriel explains the reality and he explains the truth. God's perfect power and wisdom over all of creation and his salvation story and the natural end for us is humility. Look again, verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. <laughs> I was thinking just this week, how, how do we know we're in a good place? I mean, most people would say like, am I happy? Am I healthy? Am I wealthy? I mean, all those things can change tomorrow or this afternoon. All those things can change with a phone call. Here's a better question. Here's a better answer. How can I know if my heart is in a good place? If I can speak the words of Mary in Luke 1.38. If your heart can truly say the words of Mary here, I think you're in a good place. You're ready to face the next day, whatever the next day is. I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If we can speak that to God with confidence, and so there's beauty in the details here. And there's a right response from Mary here. Yeah? The throne of David, the house of Jacob, the name of Jesus. The beauty in the details. I want to go back as we finish to the name of Jesus. It's kind of an incredible reality that our Savior has a name. I don't know if, you know, you get to name a lot of things. Uh, I just was in a really intense moment of my life where I had to name an eight-year-old girl's soccer team, and it was cutthroat, it was violent, and it was, I was pushing really hard for it to be, you know, intense. We landed on Black Dragons, solid, solid name. 
Named a lot of things in life. I had a, I had a bunny rabbit. We named him Nibbles. Um, I had a men's adult roller hockey team. We called it Team Pizza Party. But there's something like when you actually realize you're an adult, when you have to name a human, you know? And you're just sitting around, and you're like, do I start with a piece of paper? <laughs> do I start with a Google search? Is there anyone who has a name that we like? I don't know, like, what do you, how do you name someone? And the Messiah needed a name, like an earthly name. <clears throat> and in God's perfect authority and wisdom, he chose the name Jesus. I mean, God's, God could choose any name for the Messiah. He could have made up a name, like something we I never thought of that. I know, he was saving it. Chooses the name Jesus, or in the Hebrew, the name Joshua. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God uses characters to foreshadow a greater reality that is to come. Joshua in the Old Testament was just one of two men who had the faith to believe that God could deliver his people into the promised land, despite every danger that they faced. Because of his faith, God allowed Joshua to see the promised land and lead God's people into it, while all those who doubted had to spend the rest of their lives wandering the desert. And so you see a glimpse of God's perfect wisdom when his one son enters the world and God sends Gabriel and he's like, you got to tell this girl what to name him. You get one name to name the Messiah, all of human history and all the names you could choose. And he says, his name will be Jesus or Yeshua or Joshua. You think God doesn't know what he's doing when he names his own son? You think God doesn't want your mind to go back to those moments when Joshua stands on the edge of the promised land and he says, let's go. God will deliver us. God will save us. Let's enter into the promised land with our God. The name Joshua means God saves. And the life of God shows us. The life of Joshua shows us that God saves. And in his perfect wisdom, God declares, all of this points to the ultimate salvation in Christ, the ultimate deliverance from the greater enemies of sin and death, and ultimately into the promised land once and for all. And so the Messiah will be called Jesus, God saves. I love the story of Joshua because Joshua stands at the edge of the promised land and Joshua doesn't line up all the people and say, nobody enters the promised land unless you've proven you're righteous or you've proven you're strong enough or smart enough or you're worthy of this land. He simply says, we enter the promised land because of who God is and because God is with us. Amen? We don't enter the promised land because of our worthiness. We enter the promised land by faith. And Jesus Christ comes as the true and greater Joshua for us. And he's not coming to tell us to get all of the work done so we can enter the promised land. He's coming to do the work so we can enter the promised land. So that by faith we can follow him into this life. This is by faith. This is how it's always been. 
And so we look back at this incredible story of salvation and everything along the way that seemed like a disaster. And you start rereading the Old Testament and you're saying like, look at all of these things that could have gone wrong and messed up the perfect details of God. What if Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and that's it? Like the famine comes and all the tribes of Israel are just wiped out without Joseph to look after them. We don't have to imagine that because it was never going to happen. I wrote this down this week. There's a million disasters around every corner, but God is writing his story and leading his people through all of them. Will there be hard days? Yes. Will there be hard circumstances? Yes. But there's nothing that's a dead end when you are in Christ. God is sovereign over all things. He will redeem all things. We can drown ourselves in worries about scenarios that we can't control, all while God is saying, I don't have a promise for you about every single thing and every single moment, but I have a promise for you that covers all of it. And the promise is myself, that I'm with you, that I'm for you and that the work is finished. And God is delivering us into the promised land. It's the name of Jesus. Our God saves. And we get to walk in this as his people. That's pretty good news, yeah? Some good news for us. God is perfect in power. God is perfect in wisdom. And he's come to save his people. We have so much to celebrate this Christmas. Right, Village Church? Yeah. And ultimately, we get to celebrate a God who keeps his promises. Let's pray. God, you're good to save us. And we look at your word and we read the story of Christmas. It's something so familiar to us. And yet, every single detail of this, a beautiful story written by you. There's nothing careless about your story and there's nothing thoughtless about the things that you lead us through and so I just pray for everyone this morning as we consider the things of life that feel that feel difficult or feel like so detached from the great story that you're writing I pray that you'd give us the faith to see that, that you're with us in all things We pray that you'd give us the faith to see more of the hope that comes from you. In this Christmas season, that our hearts would delight in you and who you are and the salvation that comes from you. You're such a good God. You're so worthy of our worship and praise. We just delight in you at Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.